Song of Songs 8. If only you were to me like a brother, who was nursed at my mother's breasts, then, if I found you outside, I would kiss you, and no one would despise me. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house, she who has taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of my pomegranates. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. We have a little sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Haman. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. But my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. You who dwell in the gardens with friends in attendance, let me hear your voice. Come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. This is the word of the Lord. Normally we have a scripture reader, and I guess Rebecca's back. I could have had Rebecca read. I thought you were out of town still, so. But that was a little embarrassing. My wife was on the slate to read last week, and my teenage sons were here, and she was like, can I just, uh, can we wait on that one? And um, this is Max McLean. He's an actor from New York uh, that you heard, and he has some, you can listen to the Bible read. He has ESV and NIV read. Um, and I, I use it, I, I listen to him reading often. I kind of like his soothing, soothing voice. But uh, yeah, I challenge you guys to, to practice the listening of the word. And uh, we'll go back to our normal rotation next week. So probably Rebecca or Sarah or Erica will read. Um, but good morning, I'm Danny, one of the pastors here. Like I mentioned, our pastor, lead pastor, Lawrence uh, Yu, is on sabbatical. And we were praying for him and his family during this time. Eric and I are here. Eric will actually start our sermon series on 1 John next week. But we are in wisdom literature at Waypoint. We're trying to preach through the whole Bible in 10 years, which is really exciting. So as different topics come up, we hit them as the Bible presents them. We believe in biblical theology, and, and this, is, this is how we want you guys to experience God through his word and in community. So we looked at Job, and we looked at Ecclesiastes, and now we're in Song of Songs. And we've been preaching Proverbs earlier, and we're, we're, 
Throughout the 10 years, we're going to preach Psalms a little bit. We preach Psalms and the Gospels. We continually go back to them during the 10-year period. Uh, but we're in Song of Songs. And last week, I you know, introduced it, and I said it's the greatest love song. It's a, song. it's a literal love song. It was sung at the beginning of the Passover in Jewish history. Can you imagine the great, their greatest celebration, the celebration that they came out of exile, they sang that song. The Song of Songs. And I, I started last week's sermon, if you weren't here, playing the song, I Will Always Love You. And I played Dolly Parton's version, then I transitioned into Linda Ronstadt's cover, and then into Whitney Houston's. So if you didn't hear that, you can go back and listen to the podcast. Uh, I wanted to ask, which, which version did you like best? Dolly? Linda? I like Linda. Uh, Whitney? Wow, Whitney wins. Okay. All right, they're all great, and, and you have to go back and listen to see the progression. But I, I, I said that that's the love song of my generation. And it's okay to think of the Song of Songs like that song. And even the original meaning of that song and what it became to be, by that song came out my senior year of high school, the Whitney version. It, 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 even though the original intent was one thing, the song has become one of the most popular, or if not the most popular love song in American history, in pop culture, you know, in pop music American history. Interesting thing, I was in, a con- I was in Nashville for a conference this week, and I, I got a little, there a little early, so I walk out of my hotel, and I'm like, I'm just going to go for a walk. And I just walk down the street, and this is the first place I get to. This is RCA Studio Number 2 on Music Row. This is where Dolly Parton recorded I Will Always Love You. Isn't that crazy? I was like, God, you really want this song to keep showing up. Next photo... There's Lower Broadway in Nashville, and I walked by, and every, I walked by at like 11.30 in the morning, and every one of these had a live band playing. There was probably 20 or 30 of them, each one with a live band and people eating and listening. And then my favorite is this next one. The Taco Bell in Nashville actually has a stage and a live band. So, um, but we can... Yeah, we can put, take that off to not distract you. But as I thought about it, I was like, people there come. They, they literally, Nashville gets 15 million visitors a year. And people are looking for enjoyment based around music and song. They're looking for enjoyment, pleasure, fellowship, and this emotional connection, and even love. Um, and we see this throughout the scriptures as God gives us festivals and celebrations the five scrolls, as I mentioned in last week's sermon, the five scrolls of the Old Testament, which Song of Songs is one of the, these five scrolls, were read at the beginning, or were sung at the beginning of each of the five major festivals in Jewish culture. And Jesus' first miracle is actually at a wedding. So there's, some, there's something about celebrating, there's something about lament and crying out and, and fixing the brokenness, but there's also something about celebrating that God gave us. And this is the song of songs, the greatest song. Last week, uh, I answered four questions. What is the song about? Why is it called the song of songs? Why is it in the Bible? And how can this 1,500-year-old song shape me today? And this morning, I want to answer two more questions to kind of finish off our series. What can the Old Testament wisdom literature teach us about love, marriage, and sex especially considering our current reality? And how does an ancient collection of love poems, semi-erotic love poems, relate to the good news, relate to the gospel, and point us to Jesus? So let's jump right in. 
What can Old Testament wisdom literature teach us about love, marriage, sex, especially considering our current reality? If you remember when we started this series, I put the five key verses from the five wisdom literature books. Um, Job 28, God's wisdom and our wisdom. Job is about God's wisdom and our wisdom. Psalms is about God's kingship. Proverbs is about the way to wisdom. Ecclesiastes is about prosperity and adversity. Both come from God's hand. And the Song of Songs is about the power of love. Another song, right? Any 80s? Huey Lewis, when, when Marty McFly is riding the skateboard, you know, in, in Back to the Future, Power of Love, that's a good song. Huey Lewis was right on the money with that one. Uh, he was quoting the Song of Songs. No. So then we moved on, and we, as we talked about wisdom literature, I came up with a few points from some Old Testament scholars, and one was these three points is that wisdom is grounded in the fear of the Lord. If you read the sum of the wisdom literature, you, you come away with these three points. And I think if we, we also need to think that our understanding of love, sex, and marriage also needs to be grounded in the fear of the Lord. The second point was wisdom is concerned with discerning the order God built in creation, the, the order that the Lord created, and discerning this order. And I would say our view of love, marriage, and sex needs to do the same. The third thing was wisdom focuses on discerning God's way in particular circumstances. We may not always understand it, but we're trying to figure out why, is God, why do our impulses say do this, but God says do this. And I would say we apply that to sex and love and marriage. Even when it does not make sense or it goes against our feelings or what we think we should do, we just have to trust God. That's what the wisdom literature is about. It's, it's pointing us toward that. And I would argue that the New Testament continues this tradition. And almost in all the New Testament letters, the wisdom tradition is continued where we get it. How do we live out the faith? How do we live out the good news we have in Jesus? There is a connection between sex and desire and impulse. And the search for wisdom and knowledge and the background story of the Bible connect all this. And Song of Songs is, and I would argue Song of Songs and Proverbs 1 through 9 are two of the places where these two intersect. And I would argue that Song of Songs is connecting the Garden of Eden, the, the good that Solomon started at, and then Solomon's failures. I personally don't think Song of Songs was written by Solomon. That is one view, and that's a perfectly fine view. Some people think he wrote it in his early life before he got all the wives and made all the mistakes. I, I personally think it was written in hindsight to kind of show perfection in the garden and what Sullivan could have had. But e either way, it doesn't change the core meaning or its, its bigger meaning. Um, but you see a themes of Eden, you see themes of Solomon's good and then his major mistakes and his apostasy because of foreign women. He, he has, it says in the Bible, a, a thousand concubines and wives. And then we see echoes of Proverbs 1 through 9, where Lady Wisdom is chasing you. And, and, and in, in the psalm, the song, Song of Songs, we learn that wisdom is chasing us, but we're to chase wisdom too. Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis says this about the song of, the theological importance of the Song of Songs is that it represents the reversal of the primordial exile from Eden. In a word, it returns us to the garden 
of God. And I'm going to read a, a really good uh, just introduction to the Song of Songs in the broader biblical context. And this is by Old Testament scholar Edward Curtis. And he ties it all together. He says, in the early chapters of Genesis, God creates Adam and makes the woman as an appropriate helper for him. The account makes it clear that human beings were not made to function independently and autonomously, but were made for relationships. The companion that God designs for the man is not an inferior partner, but a helper who brings strength to match the man's weakness. This interdependent relationship is a fundamental part of God's design and suggests that the one flesh relationship includes far more than the physical and sexual. The fall and God's judgment on humanity have brought significant dysfunction to male-female relationships. And what is often is observed and experienced in male-female relationships reflects something quite different than God's original design. The question of how relationships between a man and a woman is supposed to work is rarely addressed in the Hebrew Bible. We often catch glimpses of dysfunctional relationships, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and his family, David and Bathsheba, uh, Amnon's rape of his half-sister Tamar, which is actually in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, Solomon and all his wives. Uh, but it is far more unusual to see a relationship that works according to God's order. Proverbs often contrast the positive and the negative potential of marriage, marriage relationships, but we are still left wondering what this one flesh relationship functioning according to God's design looks like in, in practice, looks like in practice. It seems likely that the Song of Songs is a picture of this kind of relationship between a man and a woman. The relationship that we see in the Song of Songs is characterized by love, mutual respect, and praise, praise for and delight in each other. And as Old Testament scholar Cheryl Exum points out, we learn by observing the relationship and hearing what characters say to each other. That's how we learn in the psalm. The power of the song of songs lies in its ability to draw us into the experience of the couple to participate vicariously in that relationship. In the process, we learn significant things on how that one flesh relationship that God designed is supposed to work, end of quote. That was a long quote, but I thought it was too good not to read. So what can the Old Testament wisdom literature teach us about love, marriage, and sex? I mean, we gotta start with this, and I, I believe that it teaches this. We are all broken beings. So we are all broken sexual beings. Beings. The fall impacted every part of our life, so of course it would affect sex. The first thing that God gives them when he says, be fruitful and multiply. We are all broken because of sin and the effects of sin on the individual and creation. God created us as physical and spiritual beings. We cannot separate the two. And I think because we as Westerners come out of the Greco-Roman culture, we think you can separate the two. And we can't. The Hebrew, cult, the, the Hebrew tradition never would separate the two. Who you are is who you are. And I think our modern view of sex tries to separate the two. I can just have sex for pleasure and be emotionally attached 
from, and be attached from the other parts of it. In Genesis 1, 27 through 31, first chapter of the Bible, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant. So you see he's talking about sex, and then he talks about the garden. And Song of Solomon basically has innuendo and goes back and forth between sexual imagery and garden imagery. And sometimes they're, how do you say it, double, double entendre. So last week, I actually went, I looked at, I didn't know what that word was. I probably failed Shakespeare and, and you guys who were good students. Uh, I was a human resource major, so I didn't have to do too much Shakespeare. But... I, I realized that I looked up the French pronunciation last week, so that's why it was a little off. So for those of you who actually did well in English class, you, you caught it. But this passage goes on. It says, God says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit um, with seed in it. They are yours for food. And he goes on and he, and he says, God saw that all he had made in verse 31, and it was very good. God gives them sex, he gives them this garden, and I believe the Song of Songs is doing both. It's giving, using sexual imagery and garden imagery to restore us, to, to bring us back. How many of you, I asked last week, have that song that brings you back? You hear that, like, I, Power of Love. I saw the word Power of Love, and I imagine that scene. It's not really a love song, but from, from Back to the Future. All of us have a song that brings us back. And I believe the Song of Songs in their culture and their custom was to bring them back, to give them the good things, to celebrate the good things. So what can the Old Testament wisdom literature teach us about love, marriage, and sex? It teaches us that, that we're all broken. We weren't created that way, but the fall broke it, so we're broken sexual beings. But... We're broken and, and we want us to maybe separate the physical from the spiritual and the emotional, but we can't separate the two. But the song shows us something. And one of the things it teaches us is how to honor God with our whole being. I would argue the whole Old Testament and into the New Testament teaches us this. How do we honor God with our whole being, all parts of who we are? And I came up with three points three sub points for this. And one is we need a new and right desire. And I spent a lot of time last Sunday talking about this, so I won't say much here. But we all wake up each day and live life and live each day, each week, each month, and each year, you know, desiring something. Something drives us. Something gets, wakes us up. And in our selfishness and our brokenness, we often desire what we feel. And what we think will satisfy us. And we, we're slow to like say, well, I'll trust God. But we're quick to jump to these other things. But we need to renew and restore this desire. I mentioned this last week, so I'll just quickly go over it. But in, in Genesis 3, when after the Adam and Eve sin and sin enters the world... God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And this is, 
The fall messed up and distorted the perfect partnership. This is part of the brokenness. This isn't a good thing. It's, it's just, and, and there's a Hebrew poetry here, so it's, it's kind of hard to interpret this passage. So I don't, I don't like read this passage and then come up with a lot of application. The only thing I come up with is that it just shows that the brokenness in marriage is real. And then after that, it, and it shows on the, men, the man and woman side that the fall messed up and distorted the perfect partnership in marriage between this man and this woman. And it still affects all of us to this day. And then in Genesis 4, the chapter right after it, it, it talks about Cain and Abel. And Cain desires God's favor so much. I mean, Cain, Cain wants God's favor so much that this desire causes him to kill his brother. Same word, desire. It's only used three times in the Hebrew Bible. In Genesis 3, and Genesis 4, and then in the Song of Songs. So God, so even the children that were created by the good gift of sex that God gave them killed each other. That's intentional in the Hebrew Bible. That's the next story. You know, they have kids, the two kids, and, but then God renews it with Seth. The union of Adam and Eve ends in brokenness and to a son murdering another. And the, the fall just devastates all creation, all humanity. Paul summarizes the fall and all of the brokenness of humanity and that our, and our desire, Paul basically says we desire everything but God, the one who we need the most. In Romans 1, 1 through 1, 21 through 24, Paul says this, summing up our problem. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals, reptiles. You see how they didn't trust God's creation in the garden. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Part of the fall, and Paul goes on and says they do a lot of other things after this, but part of the fall is we're broken sexually. Last week I showed that the Song of Songs is meant to make us excited to turn back to God. It wants us to turn back to God, and it also wants to renew and restore proper desire. Remember I said that word desire that shows up in Genesis 3, it shows up the Hebrew, the original Hebrew word. It shows up in Genesis 4, and then it shows up one other time. It shows up in Song of Songs 7.10. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. This is a renewed picture for love, for sex, for marriage, and even a renewed picture for all human relationships. The second point, sub-point of this, this Roman numeral one. We need to fully recognize the power and place of sex. In Song of Songs 8, 6, and 7, she says, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. Ecclesiastes talks over and over again how the grave is the most powerful thing because we're all afraid of it. 
And here she, in the song, is saying that, that love is even more powerful than the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. I think this is, I believe this is a mockery of Solomon and all the kings who, who use money to gain love and power to gain love. That's my, I can't, I don't know if that's exactly why, but that's one interpretation. Solomon failed. All the kings failed. Proverbs 1 through 9 spends a lot of time in the introduction trying to explain to us what wisdom is. But most of the time it talks about warning us against desire and sexual sin. So obviously there's something really powerful about that. When the guy has to give all this advice about wisdom, you know, the teacher in in the Proverbs, whether it's Solomon or, or some writers after Solomon in the Solomon tradition, have spent a lot of time saying, watch out for the power of sexual sin. It'll suck you in and destroy you. Now, I want to make a statement this morning. I am not sure why God made sex so powerful. If he just made it less powerful, and, and it, it, I think our world, I think, I'm not God, would be better. Because it's destroyed a lot of lives, this, the pursuit of, in this wrong desire of sex. But I know, and the song celebrates, the Song of Songs celebrates, that he gave us sex to seal the covenant of marriage, to allow the married couple to connect on the most pure and intimate level, and to procreate, to populate the earth with people who love and worship God and enjoy the good creation that God gave them. I would argue from the Old Testament into the New Testament, those are the three reasons God gave us sex. I don't know why it's so strong and so destructive, but like fire and water, which I'll talk about in a second, or the, fire and water are two examples in the, in the, the song here in, in song, song of Songs chapter eight. But it's funny, those are the two examples I talk most about about sex. Fire and water are both vital for our existence. We can't survive as humanity without them. And in their proper place, they allow us to live and thrive. But outside of their proper place, they are deadly and can destroy us. So we're, we're going to take a family trip out west for Maggie's graduation. And I was looking on some of the websites of some of the uh, national forests. And basically in California, you can't have a campfire in any national forest right now. A beautiful campfire can become, a de- can destroy hundreds of years of acres of forest, trees that are hundreds of years old. One little campfire, something so cool, so awesome. How many of you love, enjoy campfires? We all, all of us do, except for when the smoke's blowing in your face, right? During COVID, we all tried to do stuff outside during the winter, and we're having these things, and People say smoke follows beauty, right? Because the smoke goes in your face. Uh, but we love a campfire, but we don't want a forest fire. And I, and I think water is the same way. A river running through a town is a beautiful thing. It provides water to drink, places to fish and food and wash your clothes and swim and enjoy. But if, if that river is flooded, it can destroy everything. 
can literally kill people. There's no way to stop a raging river. And that's one of the images that I see of sex. In the right place, it's the most beautiful thing. So we'll head into that. What is the place of sex? In Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, Jesus says this. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus is going back to Genesis 1. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be unified to his wife. And the two of them will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Genesis 1 and 2 show us clearly the meaning of marriage and the place of sex. And Jesus clearly affirms it. The man is unified and united. He's unified with his wife and united to her, and they become one flesh. A fire belongs in a fireplace. A fire that's in the middle of your living room. Like, my fireplace is there, and it's awesome. I move that same fire two feet in front of the fireplace, my house is burnt down in, in a matter of minutes. There's something about the place of sex and marriage that God created, and we have to trust him in it. But our culture says that sex should be practiced and enjoyed whenever and as often as you like, as long as you have the consent of the other person. Sex is a leisurely activity. It's a commodity. It can be exchanged to satisfy a desire. I mean, that's the cultural teaching. That's what most of my friends, you know, that non-Christian friends in high school and taught me. And that's, that was the attitude. Modern, modern medical advances like birth control, instant abortion, and medicine that can quickly heal STDs have made sex you know, able to just be a common, simple, and leisurely activity. And I'm, not, I'm not against modern medicine. But I'm just looking at the reality of there, sex can become leisurely when there's, no, when there's no consequences for it. So it can just become a commodity. When I was living in China in the dorm, I was an international student years ago. Some guys were like, hey, come over and we'll watch an American movie. And they would watch all these, I don't know, like download stream movies. And they're like, it's about American college campus. And I don't know what movie it was. It was like a B-rate movie, not... And we're watching it, and there's a scene where a guy walks into his dorm room, and his roommate is having sex with a girl. She's fully naked, he's fully naked, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry. And the girl's like, oh, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. And the girl just has a conversation with the guy and makes jokes. And this is, and my friends who, they're like, oh, is this what American dorms are like? Is this what America's like? And I was like, wow. I don't know how to answer that, you know. I was like, obviously that type of thing does exist here because it's in the movie. Um, I, 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 that image just pops in my head. We've lowered sex to that. And it's just part of the brokenness. It's part of the, I'm not judging all the, the bad things. I'm just saying it's a broke, we're broken, so the system's broken, so of course sex is going to be broken. But then... What is sex to us? How are we to deal with this? Solomon and every king that ever lived got tons of wives. As soon as you got money and power, you got tons of wives. 
And we're similar to king, the kings of old. We have access to all kinds of power and money just because of modern technology and because we live in America and we can, we can pretty much buy whatever we want whenever we want. And I think we can look at Solomon as a, as a, a negative example, an example of power and money and sex without consequence. Because Solomon wasn't worried about how many kids he had. He had enough resources to supply them and he, he was in, in control, so he didn't care. So I bring this up, and I don't have time to talk about all of this, but I, I struggle with this. I struggle with this. I'm a chaplain at Duke, and we have these religious life meetings, and the meeting we had right before COVID, they came and they shared different things going on, and they, the lady was like from the Duke Health Services, and she said this stat, which is a national stat, and then she said some Duke stats. She said, among undergraduate students in America, 26.4% of females and 6.8% of males experience rape or sexual assault through physical force, violence, or in incapacitation. 26%. If I told you, if you walk across the street, that 26%, you have a 26% chance of getting hit by a car, no one would ever walk across the street. Yet this is the reality. These are college students. These are smart kids. You know, this isn't... These are the kids who's supposed to got good grades and, and is supposed to be the future, 26%. I'm not here to, to, to look at the stats. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just making an observation that there's something broken and the world hasn't fixed it. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Corinth was a town filled with crazy sexual stuff. Very non-biblical sexual ethic. He says this. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will be, not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both of them. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. For do you not know that you are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it, was, it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So I believe Paul's correcting that. He's saying that even if you, you're part of this brokenness, you can be united with Christ. Paul goes on to say, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. God created us. He created sex. We can trust him with it. There's a better way. This leads us to my third point. We need to wait on God and trust in his timing. Song of Songs 8.4 says, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. What song does that remind you of? You can't hurry love, right? Mama says, sorry, I've been waiting to do that. I had to play one more song during the song sermon. The song is in direct parallel, but... But there's something about waiting on God's timing. The only mention God once in the whole book 
And it only gives us one command. And it's done three times. It says, don't arouse or awaken love until it so desires. We can wait on God and trust his best for love, for marriage, for sex, for all parts of the brokenness. In the fall, we're going to have a series of seminars where there's some open discussion for you guys, where we're going to talk about all the different aspects of the brokenness of sexuality. And I'm sorry if I brought up something this morning that got you thinking, but then you were like, I wish we could hear more. I can't, I just can't cover everything. And, and, and if that number's true, 26%, then some of the people in, in 8%, some, many of you in this room have been assaulted. And that's a tragedy. And we want to help you process that in, in loving community and give you space to when you're ready to talk about it. So, so there's just a lot that we need to unpack as a church. So we're going to have these opportunities. We're all broken. So I want, to, I want you guys to, to hear me on that. So how does an ancient collection of, the second point, how does this ancient collection of love poems point us to Jesus? It restores Eden. Paul says in Romans 3, this righteousness is given through faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For all who have, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is what comes after the long laundry list of how broken we are in Romans 1 and 2. Paul says this. There's redemption and renewal in Christ. God can and is redeeming all the sexual brokenness. If you read the genealogy of Jesus, you just see broken sexual story after broken sexual story. Jesus himself comes through a chain of broken sexuality, and God redeems all of it. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul reminds us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. And this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Have you experienced the brokenness? The good news is that Jesus makes us new creations. We have freedom. We're free. I'm broken sexually. I saw too much, heard too much as a teenager, like just conflicts in my mind of, of what my friends were telling me and what I was learning in church. Um, we, we all come to this with the personalities and the experiences that God give us. God gave us. But God is renewing us and he's giving us a new story. We get Jesus. We get to be part of a new creation. We get to be part of a new family, a renewed humanity. We get the Holy Spirit. We get to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, as Paul says in Romans 12. All of us together. We get to be part of renewing and restoring the brokenness. When I was a kid, this group called Teen Challenge would come to our church once a year, and they brought these women who were drug addicts. And I remember the first time one of them was sharing their testimony. I was probably like 10 or 11. She looked like a normal girl. You know, started doing prostitution at like 13 or 14. Like, holy cow. You know, I just, just didn't even know what to do. I was probably 14 or 15 when I heard it. She was probably 25 at the point. She had gone, you know, gotten to drugs and... When I was in India, I met with these pastors who the, the prostitutes' kids would just hide under the bed while the prostitutes were with their clients, and they created a ministry for the kids. And through that process of restoring and renewing, 
the brokenness. Right here in Durham, I know that some of our, even our own Waypoint members, there's a ministry to strip club workers. Those are just things that popped in my head as I was, you know, reviewing this yesterday. We can be part of renewing. And even though, even if you're broken, even if you have sexual problems, you can still be part of the renewal. Don't think until I get it all right that I can't be part of the renewal. No. But, but as you're getting it right, be in a group of accountability and talk to people and let them know of your brokenness so that you can be working on it. But you can also be part of the renewal. I mentioned last week that Isaiah 56, Matthew 12, Matthew 19, Matthew 22, and 1 Corinthians 7 talk about in the new humanity that there's a way, even if you're not married, you're part of the new humanity. And Paul and Jesus both affirm that some people are called to singleness, and that's okay, whether it's singleness for a season or singleness for a lifetime. So I don't want to, in all this talk about marriage and sex, I want to say in the new humanity in Christ, the church is, is different. I truly believe that, you know, it says in Matthew 19 that there will be no marriage in heaven when they try to trick Jesus. I truly believe, I can't prove this, that singing is one of the things that replaces sex in heaven. That I will, I, I sing terrible. I have a bad voice. I mean, I can't sing in tune. But I believe I will have a good voice in heaven. And I will be able to harmonize. And I heard that if you can sing perfectly with someone, it's one of the most beautiful experiences. I, I can't experience that on earth. But I, I believe that I will experience that in the new heaven and the new earth. There's something about singing. There's something about renewal. We get a new song and a new garden. I'm, I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to jump ahead. But in it, What's the first song in the Bible? The first time we someone sings, I mentioned it last week in the sermon. It says, For the Lord God, in Genesis 2, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And it talks about he, he gives him the suitable helper. So I'm going to jump ahead to verse 23. So this is Genesis 2, 23. For, good job. My son's working the, the booth back there. Thanks, Isaac. This is the first song in the Bible. If we look at Hebrew poetry, we say this is probably a song. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It sounds kind of silly in English, but notice, of my, of my, song of songs, king of kings, holy of holies. When you say this, you're saying this is the biggest, the best of the best. She will be called woman for she was taken out of man. So this is the first song recorded in the Bible. And what's the last song recorded in the Bible? Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given to her, her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteousness acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Just before this in Revelation 17 and just after this in Revelation 19, 16, Jesus is called the Lamb, the Lamb that triumphs because he is the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. This is what we call him. There's a, there's, the Bible starts with this union and, the, and then it, the brokenness happens, but it ends with the wedding feast. 
and we are the bride. There will no longer need to be a holy of holies on earth. We will no longer need to sing a song of songs that will never satisfy because we're waiting on the feast of feasts at the wedding of the King of Kings and the, Lords of Lord, the Lord of Lords. We are his bride. He is our groom. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our King. Right now, let us sing our song of songs to the King of Kings. Let's, that, let's let that be who we are and let's do it in community. Let's build each other up. This world is broken. It's tough. But God is with us. Let's sing the song of songs to the King of Kings. Let's pray. Wow, God, this is probably the hardest sermon I've ever preached because I've changed what I should say 50 times. Because I want to honor you and acknowledge that we're all broken and that sex is so powerful and so much a part of our culture and there's so much confusion around us and there's so much guilt that many of us feel around it. But God, you gave us your word. You gave us your song of songs to, to show us that the garden was beautiful and that one day we can anticipate this beautiful wedding feast. Be with us as we trust you with each day, as we long for that day. But until we get there, God, may we be your people who trust you in all things, including the brokenness of our sexuality. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.